Well, good morning, everyone. I'm so glad that you're here. My name's Ben. Welcome to Four Corners. Now, when you see this tub on our stage, you know it's a baptism Sunday. And today we're baptizing a few people, one in first service, several more in second service. And when it comes to that, it's a celebration around here. But right now, what we're going to do is we're going to take our next installment of our message series called You, Me, and Us. And you can follow along in your program. It looks like this. You can open it up. Follow along. Most of the scriptures, most of the major points I'm making are in there. And then, of course, you can take this home with you to remember what we talked about. And the other reason you can take it home is on the back. There's some important dates of things that are happening in the life of the church. So You, Me, and Us is a relationship series. It speaks specifically to marriage, but to other relationships. In fact, there's so much that we talk about when we talk about marriage that applies to friendships and co-worker relationships, uh, bosses and the people they manage. Uh, It's just a broadly applicable series. But today I want to talk about the unique challenges of living with imperfect people in a marriage. Some of you aren't married. um, And so when we talk about this, sometimes it's a little um, interesting to sit in a room, I would imagine, if you're not married, to hear people talk about marriage. But everybody in this room, your life has been impacted by the dynamics that we're talking about. Maybe it was your mom and dad, and uh, they were married, but the dynamics we're going to talk about today didn't go well in your home. And it's left for you certain memories and feelings as you think back on that time. And others of you are in the middle of these kinds of dynamics right now, or you recently were, and because they weren't managed well, um, because things were, got really ugly, your marriage ended. And some of you, like, neither one of those apply to you, but you have friends and you have family members and you're watching them and you have this intuition that says, if they don't get a handle on that, I don't know if their marriage is going to make it. Some people have said that love is blind, and if that's true, then marriage is a great eye-opener, isn't it? Yeah, it's a great eye-opener. It teaches you a lot about the person that you're trying to spend your life with. And nobody stands on a stage in front of an audience with a pastor and a best man and a maid of honor and friends and family gathered. Nobody does that hoping that they're going to get a three or five or ten year run out of it. Everybody has aspirations that this relationship is going to be life-giving It's going to be affirming, it's going to be helpful, it's going to be enjoyable, it's going to be good for a very, very long time, for your whole life. And when you have those hopes, those hopes actually align with what God's hope is for your relationship. But if you don't get a handle on what we're talking about today, well, then that's going to be very difficult for you. We're going to turn to a passage at First Peter in your Bible, you can go there on your phone and your message notes are on the screen. And I want to take you to a passage where the Apostle Peter is going to talk about this dynamic in life, but it really shows up in marriage. And I want to take you there because it's a special passage for a variety of reasons. First of all, it's written by a guy named Peter. And if there was ever a guy that knew what it was to not be perfect, to mess up big, And to have that big mess up not destroy everything good in his life, it's Peter. Let me catch you up if you don't know that story. Peter was a disciple of Jesus. He was one of the ones who Jesus seemed to have in an inner circle. There was a close relationship there. And yet it seems like every time Peter turned around, usually his mouth was getting him into trouble. He was messing up big time. At one point, there's a very spiritual event that happened. It's called the Mount of Transfiguration. Some crazy, crazy wild stuff happened. It's a deeply spiritual moment in our New Testament. And Peter pipes up, and he looks at Jesus, and he says, it's really good that I'm here, right? And he made that very spiritual moment all about him when it was really all about Jesus and what God was doing. At another point, Peter and Jesus are talking, and Jesus looks at Peter and he says, Peter, get behind me, Satan. In other words, the stuff you're saying is completely out of line. It doesn't fit. It's not coming from the right source. Get behind me. But the biggest mess up in Peter's life came when he used his mouth. Jesus wasn't around, but he used his mouth to say things like this. I don't even know this guy named Jesus. I've never even heard of this guy named Jesus. And Peter denies Jesus three times. I mean, major mess-ups in this guy's life. But Jesus goes out of his way to remind Peter that they have a relationship worth salvaging. 
They have a relationship worth continuing. When Peter had denied Jesus three times, that happens right before Jesus goes to the cross. And he's, he's gone. As far as Peter knows, he's gone, gone. And the Bible tells us that Jesus is resurrected from the dead. And one of the first things that Jesus says after Easter morning is this. Go tell my disciples. And then he adds a unique phrase. Go tell my disciples and Peter that I'm going to meet with them in Jerusalem. He goes out of his way to say to this guy that had denied him, that had messed up about as big as you can mess up, and, you know, destroyed loyalty, destroyed trust. Jesus goes out of his way to say, go tell my disciples and make sure you tell Peter that I want to meet with them all in Jerusalem. Jesus goes out of his way to say that there's relationships that are going to experience some rough stuff, that have experienced some rough stuff, but they're worth salvaging. They're worth investing in. They're worth not giving up on. And so we're calling today's conversation, what are you fighting for? Because I promise you, if you have a relationship with any depth at all, for any length of time at all, marriage or otherwise, eventually there's going to be some conflict. There always is. You can't avoid conflict in life. Now, some of you are incredibly conflict-averse. And when I say the statement, you can't avoid conflict, you almost take that on as a challenge. Like, watch me. Watch me not have any conflict. But the truth is you can't. You can't. If you try to do anything significant at all with your life, you're inviting more conflict. If you're a manager and you've got to change the behavior of your team and take them from where they are to where they need to be on some measure, scale, you know, performance evaluation, you're inviting conflict. And when you stand in front of God and a pastor or a judge and you say the words, I do, you're going to have conflict. So Peter writes a letter, and in our Bible it's called First Peter. It's the first one in order. There's a second Peter, just the second one in order. He writes a letter to general Christians over which he has responsibility. And in that letter, he starts talking about this wonderful tenacity that exists in Jesus. This stick-withedness that he has so that when we mess up, he's still very committed to us. And before we get to talking about marriage, we have to understand his mentality, Peter's mentality in this letter, because it sets the backdrop for what he's going to say to husbands and wives. And when we read this passage, some of you are going to say, man, I wish my parents would have known that. Some of you are going to say, I wish that my parents who knew that would have followed that. And some of you are going to say, man, I wish the relationship I was in practiced this better. So Peter starts. He's not even talking about marriage. We're going to pick him up in Peter chapter 2, the second division, about verse 23. And he's talking about Jesus, and it's like he's recounting the history of how Jesus was treated and what he did with how he was treated. So in 1 Peter chapter 2, here's what our Bible says. When they hurled insults at him, he's talking about Jesus. They hurled insults at Jesus, he didn't retaliate. And when he suffered, he made no threats. Instead... He entrusted himself to him, that's his heavenly father, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, Peter says. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the overseer, the one in charge of your souls. So he's not even talking about husbands and wives. He's talking to Christians and he's saying, look, look, look. There's conflict. I'm the leader of this group of Christians, this church. And there's things that happen and people say things that aren't true. And sometimes they say things that are true in hurtful ways. And they have agendas that are competing. And when that stuff happens, I want you to think about Jesus. How when they treated him horrible, he did not return horrible actions. And they hurled insults at him that he didn't deserve. And at one point in the Bible, it says, and he opened not his mouth. That's incredibly hard. That's incredibly hard. But the motivation for Jesus, the reason he was able to do it is, Jesus said, I don't need everybody else to like me, affirm me, think I'm awesome. 
Peter tells us that he entrusted himself to what his heavenly father thought about him. And that somehow gave him strength to engage, to sustain, and to get through those moments. There was something about the way he thought about how his heavenly father thought about him that helped him deal with how everybody else thinks about him. And Peter's saying, look, in the way you're doing Christian life together, I want you to have that same mindset. I want you to trust Jesus that way. He's your shepherd. He cares for you. He's the overseer. He's the one in charge. Trust him the way you saw him trust his heavenly father when it comes to this kind of relational messiness that can happen in life from just a few irritants to unbelievable amounts of injustice in the way you've been treated. Look at how Jesus did it. Now, in our Bible, we go from that word where he says he's the overseer of your souls, and then there's a period, and then the next chapter begins. But you need to know, originally, there are no chapter divisions. Those were added later so that we could find our place in the Bible. We didn't have to go, go to somewhere in the middle of Peter's letter, you know, and find... No, they added chapters, and then later on they added verses just so we could find our place. So the very next thought out of Peter's mind to these people he cares about, here's what he says. Now, what he's going to do, by the way, is he's going to take this principle of what Jesus did, and he's going to apply it to marriage. The point, you already know. But now Peter, as a good pastor, is going to tease out the implication for what it's supposed to look like in a marriage. So he says, so wives, in the same way, that's the key phrase here, in the same way, wives, in the same way that you saw Jesus acting, in the same way Jesus bore on the cross the weight of our sins, in the same way Jesus acted when bad things happened, even from people he cared about to Jesus, in the same way, wives, Submit yourselves to your own husbands so that any of them that do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Now, a couple weeks ago, Pastor Will gave us a message called the S word and he talked about submit. I'm not going to rehash all that because really that would be a distraction from the point he's making, I believe. He says, in the same way, wives, there's going to come moments in your life when you're going to have to choose to submit to your husband in the same way Jesus submitted to the people who were treating him poorly. The very people who treated him poorly, Jesus wore the weight of that sin on his own body on the cross. And wives, there are going to be some moments in your marriage when you're going to have to bear the weight of your husband's sinfulness in your marriage. You're going to have to submit to that. That's not a pretty picture. Why, why, would, why would somebody who's, you know writing this awesome letter about how amazing God is and how we can persevere through suffering. Why would he pause to talk about marriage in the middle of that conversation? Oh, my hunch is, we don't know for sure, that there must have been some marriage stuff happening among the people that he cared about. That must have been true for the Apostle Paul, too, because a lot of the stuff they talk about specifically deals with marriage. It's almost as if marriage becomes this pressure cooker, this microcosm of life that all the ups and downs can be experienced. And it is. It is exactly that. So wives, in the same way Jesus bore the offense of other people, you're going to have to submit your will to the good of the relationship, even to the betterment of your husband. And on occasion, you're going to have to bear the weight of his imperfection, of his sinfulness, of his selfishness. That's going to happen in a marriage, but don't think you're alone in that. And if you think you have it hard, look at what happened to Jesus. Now, we're going to tease that out for the next several minutes. But first, let's hear how he addresses husbands. So the next few words I've skipped, there's some beautiful stuff, by the way, to wives about where real beauty comes from. You know, don't think that your real beauty's on the outside. Your real beauty's on the inside. It's almost as if he's saying the same thing to wives that he said about Jesus. Jesus thought, what does my heavenly father think about me? And that gives me my value. And that allows me to not be completely sidetracked by what you think about me. 
In the same way, wives, your heavenly Father sees the heart. And while the world may see some shell of a person, your heavenly Father sees all the way through you. So don't spend all your time on the shell. Work on the heart. That's what Peter says. But then he turns his attention to husbands. Now husbands, and catch this next phrase, in the same way. In what same way? In the same way he's talking to wives? Well, yes, but you got to back up to chapter 2. Husbands, in the exact same way that Jesus engaged people who were hurtful and mean and unjust and sometimes petty and ignorant, in the same way that Jesus did all that, and then he bore the weight of that, husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect. Now, this was... This was countercultural. In that day and age in the Roman Empire, some 40% of the inhabitants of Rome were slaves. The idea of respect and pecking order is a big deal. And legally, wives had very little legal standing. It kind of went like slaves, children who are not quite adults, wives, and then citizens. You know, then the army, and then, then the head of the house. I mean, wives are way down. And so when Peter says, husbands, treat your wives with respect, there's an echo to treat them as if they are full citizens. Treat them as if they have equal standing with you. Treat them as if they have equal quality of essence. And to remember that they are, he says, <clears throat> remember that they are, uh, treat them with respect as if they are the weaker partner and as heirs with you in the gracious gift of life, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. That phrase, weaker partners, can be a speed bump for some people, but he's acknowledging a reality in his day that has less to do with physical strength and a lot to do with the standing of that person in the community. It's not speaking to their intellectual acumen at all. It's not even speaking necessarily to an emotional versus a more stoic approach to life. It's just they don't have much to stand on in our culture. By the way, a little side note, this is a hobby horse of mine. Wherever you see Christianity thriving in the world, the plight of women and children get raised. And wherever Christianity, just do the research yourself, wherever Christianity suffers or is minimal, you'll see the plight of women and children dropped. And that's why when your freshman class taught you that Christianity is a patriarchal religion that devalues women, it isn't historically accurate. Although there might be a few Christians who've done that. We'll get back to the message right now. That was a freebie. All right. Look at what he says, husbands. But do this so that nothing will hinder your prayers. This might be the scariest verse in the Bible for me. There's something about the way you treat your wives, husbands, that has a direct impact on your spiritual power. He says, it's, I mean, it's, it's implicit. You don't treat your wife right in the way that Christ treats people. If you're not modeling after him, don't expect to have much power in your spiritual life. Your prayers will be hindered. So, man, I just throw this out. If you're praying about something, first of all, some of you aren't praying about anything. Start praying, right? Secondly, if you're praying about stuff and you're not seeing much movement, pray harder, I suppose. Figure it out. Search God. And then do a little investigating about how you're treating your spouse. See what happens there. There might be something for you to mine. There might be a few gems hidden in that little truth right there. So husbands and wives, treat each other the way Jesus treated people, in the same way. And then look what he says, the very next verse, finally, concluding his thoughts about Jesus and how it's teed out in husband and wife relationships. Finally, all of you, husbands, wives, single, married, old, young, men, women, finally, all of you, be like-minded, like-minded, like Jesus-minded. Be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate, and be humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to, to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. It, it works like this, that blessed people, and by the way, most people in this room are blessed. You know, if you got up this morning, you're kind of blessed. If there was food to eat in your house, you're really, really blessed compared to the rest of the world. If you had a roof over your head, you're blessed. 
right? So blessed people bless people. And when you bless people, you get blessed. That's the pattern in the scripture. So this is our scriptural background. Let's talk a little bit about how this gets teased out, all right? Let's make it pretty practical for us. So uh, these things are not in your notes, but I want to give you a few statements to just kind of set the tone here. Marriage is not a contractual relationship. In a contractual relationship, the rights of the individual and the primary orientation is performing for the other people. Now, some people approach marriage as a contract. I'll be kind to you if you're kind to me. I'll give you what you want if you give me what I want. And by the way, you're going to go first. But that's death to the kind of marriage that Jesus calls us to. And marriage is not a consumer relationship where the needs of the individual and the primary are, 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 are supreme, and the primary orientation is taking from the other. Now, this is important to talk about because in our culture, we are a consumeristic culture. Not all of that is bad. If you're going somewhere to buy a product, to buy a service, you can expect to be served. And when they don't serve well, don't go back there or don't tip well, I suppose. It's okay to have a consumeristic mindset in many places where you go. If Kroger's not the best place to shop, go somewhere else. Not wrong. You're not, you're not obligated to Kroger because they're the closest store to your house. You can be a true consumer in every sense of the word. But if you bring that mentality to your marriage, you're in trouble. You're in trouble because it doesn't work. Marriage is a completely different kind of relationship. Marriage is a covenant relationship where the needs of the relationship are above the individual and the primary orientation is serving one another. The problem is, is most people who get married, myself included, never thought deeply that really what I'm committing to is serving this woman for the rest of my life. Like the weight of that, even if on concept I was exposed to it, and I was, I had great premarital counseling. It was told to me, but the full weight of that idea that I'm here to serve her, well, that was lost on a, I was 20 years old. I was 20 years old when I got married. That was lost on me. I didn't know the full depth of that. I didn't know the full implications of that. Remember, love is blind, but marriage became an eye-opener for me. It reminds me of the son who was speaking to his dad, and he said, Dad, I hear that in some parts of the world, Men don't even know the wives that they're going to marry until after they get married. And the dad looked at the son. He said, no, it's not some parts of the world. It's everywhere. <laughs> you don't really know them until you get married. Some people have just formalized that, all right? So that for us, marriage defined, this is just kind of a working definition. And by the way, this is countercultural. And some of you, when I give the definition, like your life doesn't even align We'll talk about all that stuff in just a moment, all right? But marriage is a, to the Lord is a sacred, permanent, this side of heaven, exclusive, permanent and exclusive, intimate covenant between a man and a woman, established by God, and it's entered through through the public exchange of vows, and it's attended with both blessings and cursings, depending on how you do it. Permanent. And exclusive. Now, we're a pretty modern church in many ways. And because of that, sometimes people come in our doors and they think that because we're pretty modern, then we don't really have any standards. We don't call people to certain expectations. But nothing could be further from the truth. And it would be remiss of me as a pastor if I just didn't drop this in here, all right? Marriage is permanent and exclusive. And in our day and age, the vast majority of people who get married have lived together as husband and wife without being husband and wife before they become husband and wife. That's just the reality of the world we live in. And if that's where you are, you're in the right church. We love you. You're welcome here. This is your church. But that's not the life God calls you to. God says that certain behaviors that happen in marriage are to be operated under the covenant of marriage because it speaks to exclusivity and to permanence. And every once in a while, a couple will come talk to me and they'll say, you know, we're kind of wrestling with this. We're not really doing it right. We want to do it right. We, you know, our hearts are right. And I love those kinds of conversations. Most people find that to be a grace-filled thing. But, and even though it's, you know, completely revealing and sometimes it feels like the Band-Aid's being pulled off, at the end of it, they feel pretty good about the conversation. The question I have for all of them is the same, and I'm just going to give it to you, and you can do what you want with it, all right? 
I have found most people who are living together and don't want to make it formal, they have all their reasons, but at the core of it, in one or both of them, there's a fear over one of those two qualities of marriage, exclusive or permanent. There's a fear that they're not quite ready, and if they get married now, it may not be permanent. On occasion, one of the partners is thinking, I'm not really sure this is the best I can do. And so I'm going to hold out, and if something else were to come along, I'm interested in another. Now, you may have your reasons, your friends may have their reasons, your nephews may have their reasons for it, but I have found if you really think deeply about exclusive and permanent, and you are committed to that person enough to act like husband and wife, then typically the barrier of the formalization of the relationship isn't much of a barrier anymore. Exclusive and permanent. Most people are exclusive for now and permanent for now. But that's not the kind of relationship that God calls us to. And the reason we have to talk about that a little bit, because when I turn the corner and we start teasing out here what it means to do conflict in marriage, if it's not exclusive and permanent, then there are too many exit clauses from the relationship. You're going to have fights in your marriage. There's going to be conflict. And so what are the bounds that keep you in the bounds? What do the fences look like? What holds you together? Well, there's a commitment to one another that is exclusive and permanent, which means we're not bailing on this just because it got hard. Now, I'm not going to give many provisos and quid pro quos and that sort of thing over the rest, but I'll give one now. The Bible does affirm there's a time to break the covenant. When somebody has broken the covenant through sexual infidelity, the Bible affirms that the other person is free. They don't obligate it, but they're free. So there are provisos, and there probably are a handful more. But for most of us, we need to think less about the provisos and think more about the fact that we are called to a permanent, exclusive, sacred, and and lasting relationship where we serve one another even when we don't treat each other well. And there's nothing popular about this at all. But it comes to number one in your message notes, and we're going to buzz through these, all right? Number one in your message notes, it comes to the purpose of your marriage. And let me make this statement in your message notes. The purpose of your marriage must be greater than the stress that comes upon your marriage. Or you're not going to stand up under the pressures of life. The purpose of your marriage. And when I was 20 years old, standing with my beautiful bride in front of my family and friends and the pastors that had spoken into our lives, making that covenant, I'm not sure I understood the full purpose. But we're approaching 30 years. Right? Not quite. We've got, a, you know, I think 29 technically. Yes? Approaching 29? Just past 28. Thank you. See? I should have written that down. <laughs> But we're coming up on three decades. How's that? I could have said that and I avoided all the other. We're coming up on three decades, and the purpose of our marriage has become more clear to me over time. I know my purpose. I'm to serve her and do my best to bring out the best for her and provide for our family to the best of my ability and create an environment where our kids flourish. To some degree, our marriage is supposed to be salt and light in the world have a preserving effect, an encouraging effect on other people, and show other people that two imperfect people can do a pretty beautiful thing together. And those things mean a lot to me. I primarily want to do that for my kids. I want to show them that no matter how ugly things get over time, mom and I are committed to one another, and there's great value in being committed to one another. And so that purpose begins to speak louder into my marriage. It gives Jill and I the opportunity then to you know, kind of hurdle over some of the obstacles. Sometimes they're big in front of us. So what's the purpose of your marriage? I don't know if you've thought about it. Maybe you'd use some of the same words I have. But I know this as if you lose sight of the purpose of your marriage. When the hard times come, and they always come, it's going to be tougher for you. You'll start looking for the exits. And that's death to a marriage. Number two. Marriage is an unconditional commitment to, the, to an imperfect person. And as I'm talking about this, I'm just reminded that some people in our room and watching uh, online, you probably feel a pain in that because that was your heart, that was what you did, and the person you're married to didn't do it. And man, that stinks. That hurts. When somebody doesn't live up to this call, 
Because it's a good call. It's a noble call. It's a healthy call. It's a doable call. But it's not a call that's universally embraced or universally experienced. So it's an unconditional commitment to an imperfect person. I'm getting older, and Jill and I both have birthdays just recently. And the other day I was standing there and kind of looking in the mirror and said to her, she's standing behind me, are you still going to love me when I'm kind of old, balding, and fat? And she said, I do, honey, I do, I really do. <laughs> it's a perfect commitment to imperfect people, right? And the truth is, on your next blank is you're going to sin against your spouse, and your spouse is going to sin against you. Now, there are mistakes. There's just differences in personality. Those aren't necessarily a sin. But the truth is, if you've been married for any length of time, if you're just honest, sometimes it's just blatant sin, selfishness, ego, dishonesty, hiddenness, deception, Harsh words. These things happen. The Bible has a category for that stuff. It's called sin. And sin always brings pain. The reason your heavenly father doesn't want you to do the things he tells you not to do has very little to do with keeping you from experiencing all of life or not having joy. He's not trying to hide good things from you. Sin brings pain. And that's why he says, for instance, be careful with addictive substances. Because even if you're free to play with it a little bit, some of us are going to get ensnared by that. So don't be drunk with wine, which leads to excess, he says. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. You can have some wine if you want. I mean, it's biblically allowed. But you can't become a slave to it. Why? Now, why does the Lord talk? Because it's going to bring incredible pain in your life. One of the Ten Commandments, do not commit adultery. Why? Incredible pain. Moments of pleasure, incredible pain. And you'll live the principle of Scripture which says sin is pleasurable for a season. And when you read that passage, it doesn't mean then go out and have your season. It means that season's coming to an end. And every sin that happens in your marriage, whether it's a small one that's understandable because it's human nature, or it's one of the big ones, whatever that might be, every one of them is going to bring some kind of pain to the relationship, to you who's doing it, and to the person you're doing it against. No, nobody has the power in my life, like my wife, to speak good and bad to me. When my wife is speaking the good things about me and telling me how awesome I am, I mean, I'm ready to rock the world. I don't really care what you have to say. She has the ability to use her words, and I'm a words guy anyway, to just build me up. And, man, I feel like Superman. And she has the ability to speak words in a very different kind of way, and I feel like crud. That's the power of this relationship. And so when she's following Christ, and I could say the same thing about me to her, when I'm following Christ and I'm speaking from the attitude and expressions and perspective he left me, I'm building her up. And when I act not like Christ, I have a detrimental impact on her. So number four, we're going to have to practice repenting of sin if we hope to have a loving, lasting life together. You're going to have to learn how to be a good repenter. There's a book that I credit with saving my marriage. The Bible, yes, but... I read a book at a particularly troubling time in our marriage, and had the Lord not gotten our attention, I'm not sure what would have happened. I read a book called Sacred Marriage years and years and years ago by a guy named Gary Thomas. You may want to write that down, Sacred Marriage, Gary Thomas. And what he says is that the problem is, is that people don't so much fall out of love, they fall out of repentance. And that starts an ugly cycle in the marriage where you start excusing your own sin and you're ignorant of the pain your own sin is producing in the marriage. And the cumulative effect of that over time destroys the relationship. Powerful statement. Some of you are in the middle of that, you're doing that, and others are having it done to you. And neither one is pleasant. So then if we have to get good at repenting, what is repenting? Number five, 
Repentance is not feeling bad about your sin. It's feeling what God feels about your sin. So let me tell you something about you and me. You and me both can be incredibly selfish at times. And we don't feel bad about it at all. In fact, we'll, on occasion, feel incredibly justified for the way we speak to our spouse. Because after all, we just told the truth. But telling the truth was never the standard in the Bible. You know Christians who hide behind telling the truth, and they're ugly, and they're mean, and they cause incredible harm to the body of Christ. But they're telling the truth, telling it like it is. That's why Jesus never said, simply tell the truth. Do you remember what he said? Speak the truth in love. That's hard to do, especially when you're right. And I mean literally, you're right. It's incredibly hard when you've been right for the 50th time. But in those moments, Jesus says, speak the truth in love. So repentance isn't feeling bad because sometimes you can do very bad things and not feel bad at all. And you can go a long time without feeling bad. The Bible talks about this, Romans chapter 3. You may want to write Romans chapter 3 down. The Apostle Paul describes a process through where if you stop listening to the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the small matters, you can find yourself in a place where God's effectively yelling at you and you don't even hear it anymore. The phrase Paul uses is your conscience is seared. So if you're relying on your emotions to tell you what you're doing is wrong, but you have a seared conscience or you're blinded by your own selfishness and ego, your feelings are not going to guide you very well. That's why the Bible says, guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life. Guard it. And at one place, the New Testament writer says, even if your own heart deceives you, think about that phrase, your own heart tells you something that's not true. God is greater than your heart. It's not about your feelings. What does the Lord say about this particular behavior? No matter how justified you are. Again, couples don't fall out of love so much as they fall out of repentance. Gary Thomas from Sacred Marriage. Number six, when you sin against your spouse, you cause the marriage to suffer. Now, sometimes in an argument, I hate to admit it, but I've been very mean to my wife. I've said very hurtful things. Yeah, I could give you the list of what they are, but that would be very mean and dishonoring. Because you probably can fill in the blanks with the things you've done. It's probably very similar to some of the things. And I feel in the moment, you know, that it's justified, that I have a point to make, or doggone it, you're acting so jerkified, it's worth it. And that's just a mark of immaturity. And what I don't measure usually is the impact that my words and actions, sometimes avoidance, has on our relationship. And remember, covenant puts the relationship first. Contract says, I get mine and you get yours. Consumer says, I'm going to get mine whether you get yours or not. But covenant says, I'm in this for both of our goods. Which means I can't tolerate your sin and I can't tolerate mine either. So James chapter 5, verse 17. Confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. James was just talking to Christians. He wasn't specifically addressing husbands and wives. But I can't think of a better verse today for some of the marriages in our room. You confess your sins one to another. And watch what the Lord does in a healing and restorative way in your relationship. It's pretty powerful. And the implication here is you confess yours, not necessarily call out the other. There's a time and place for that. That's a different message. You confess your own sins in the relationship and watch how the Lord heals and restores. When you take your sin seriously, you're taking it the way Jesus did. So he bore the weight of everybody's sin on his own body in the cross. He submitted himself to that reality because of the kind of relationship he wanted. It's pretty powerful stuff. In Luke chapter 11. I'm sorry, go to number 7 first. 
when you are sinned against, so we talked about sinning and confessing, but when you're sinned against, then we have to quickly forgive. Quickly forgiving is the right move for your health and for your marriage. In Luke 11, forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. In the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts, our trespasses, as we forgive those who have debts or trespass against us. Andy Stanley, a guy I like to read who inspires me often, he says it this way. The problem with forgiveness is it's hard. In the shadow of my hurt, forgiveness feels like a decision to reward my enemy. In in the shadow of my hurt, forgiveness feels like a decision to reward my enemy. But in the shadow of the cross, forgiveness is simply a gift from one recipient of grace to another. Do you know what helps me forgive my wife when she's not so nice? And it rarely happens. Truthfully, I'm the harder one. I remember how much the Lord's had to forgive me. And somehow in that remembrance, that acknowledgement of who I am and my own frailty before God, it helps me to forgive her. If you can't confess your sin, and if you're unwilling to forgive, your marriage is already dying. Now, you may make it to the grave not having officially ruined your marriage. But all of us know marriages that are lifeless and loveless and functional. At the root of that, somebody, and often both of them, aren't carrying the weight of each other's well-being the way Christ carried the well-being of those people who were, were wronging him in the last hours of his life. This is a high calling. Marriage is a high calling. It's for men and women, not boys and girls. So number eight, forgiving your spouse has very little to do with them. Forgiving your spouse's offenses has very little to do with them. It has to do with you. Now, they can make it easier. If they come to their sin humble and repentant with a certain amount of honesty, it's easier. But forgiveness is about you releasing your need for revenge. And you'd be surprised how many people in a marriage are extracting revenge in the conversations that they're having. Many of them don't even know it. But it's as simple as, you hurt me, I'm going to hurt you. Sometimes it's subconscious. That's why professionals say it this way. Hurt people hurt people. Bless people, bless people, hurt people, hurt people. Sometimes I don't even know it. Having a forgiving heart is essential in marriage if it's going to survive. Now, some offenses are so big, the scripture acknowledges and allows for that. But even then, letting go of your need for revenge is healthy for you. Number nine. We're called to respond to our sinful spouse as God has responded to our sin with forgiveness. Because this is a gospel issue. This is not just psychology or psychobabble. This is not feel-good-ism. This is the gospel life Christians are called to. And it's incredibly difficult. You probably can't do it in your own strength. But the Lord comes alongside and makes a difference. Number 10, if we don't kill our sin, our sin will kill our marriages. It's just true. That secret thing that maybe has been relatively hidden, I'm telling you, it's costing you more than you realize. You just don't know it yet. But sin will always take you farther than you want to go, keep you there longer than you want it to stay, And make you pay more than you want it to pay. It will always do that. And that's why God says to us, come on guys, I'm not trying to rob you of joy. I'm trying to prevent you from pain. That's why you tell your kids, don't touch a hot stove. But that handle hanging over looks so inviting. Whatever it is you're doing up there, I want to be a part of it. That's what we told our son, Max. Don't touch, don't touch. The moment we turned around, literally, put his hand up there. And we had one of those kind of 
coil-styled electric stoves. I know, we're bad parents. I get it. But when he pulled his hand back, he had nice little marks on his fingers. He never touched a stove again. He still can't get the guy to cook to this day. Psychologically damaged. Well, why do we tell him not to touch the stove? We're not trying to rob him of any experiences. We're, we care for him. So let me ask you a question. What do you need to repent of to your spouse? Number two, what do you need to forgive your spouse for? If you feel like you can't do it, the Lord can help. I'm going to give you one little trick. Number 11, encourage daily. That is verbalized with your words, encouragement. It's really difficult to become bitter, resentful, and hard-hearted towards someone that you're forgiving, you're gracing, you're putting grace into action and you're encouraging them daily. If you'll practice speaking daily, almost daily encouragement to your spouse in a way that's meaningful to them, it's very difficult to harbor bitterness and unforgiveness. That would bring life to a lot of marriages here. Now, the last thing I want to tell you is the most hopeful thing I've said all day. I don't know if you know it or not, but number 12, the best day of your marriage The best day of your marriage was the day that Jesus rose from the dead. And it happened before any one of us in this room were born. You know why there's hope for your marriage? You know why your marriage can be more than it is today, even if it's good? You know why you don't have to give up on your marriage? Because we serve a risen and powerful Savior, and the gospel still sets people free. And the same gospel that puts you in a relationship with Jesus, that same power that raised Jesus from the dead can be at work in your marriage. The best thing that ever happened to your marriage is your Lord and Savior rose from the dead displaying incredible amounts of victory over every sin this world has ever experienced and every sin you've ever experienced. So there's great hope. There's great hope for marriages today. But confession and forgiveness are going to have to be more a part of your regular routine. It'll be good for you. You want to do this because it's good for you. It's the best kind of hedonism. It's healthy, but it also is good for you. That's why you want to do this. And if you feel like you can't, have a conversation with Peter. Read his words this week who thought that maybe the Lord would never use him again. But Jesus spoke the words, go tell my disciples and Peter that I want to meet with him in Jerusalem. And he says the same things about you. Go tell this man, go tell this woman that I want to meet with them on this issue. We're okay. It's going to be fine. I'm no longer dead. I'm alive. Why don't you grab out your connect cards and let's take a couple steps together. I've been talking about the power of the gospel. It is possible you don't yet have a relationship with Jesus. The Bible says you can change that in a moment by not trusting anything you can do, but trusting the work that Jesus did on the cross and in his resurrection. If you want to put your trust in the work Jesus has done, become a child of God, the Bible says it looks like this. You confess that you're a sinner. And that you can't save yourself. God, I'm a sinner. I can't save myself. I trust the work Jesus has done. I put my trust in that alone to save me and secure a relationship with my heavenly father. We'd ask you to take the pen and check next step A on that connect card that Will was talking about in the video. Put it in the offering bucket in just a moment. And then we'll communicate with you about what it means to be a child of God. And I'm going to pray and give you a chance to do some business with the Lord today, even right now. Our next step B today, I'm choosing to be baptized. We're going to celebrate here in a moment. If you have questions about baptism and want to get baptized, just check the box. It starts the conversation. Next step C, here's what it says. I'm going to pray for my spouse this week and also ask God to help me forgive where I've been holding a grudge. That's the part you can control. You can't make them confess, but you can forgive where you've been holding a grudge. Next step D says, hey, I'd like to attend Grow Step 4 that Will was talking about in the video. So uh, would you send me the link to sign up? And if you check the box, we'll shoot you that. It's a great step of growth. And uh, one of the most fun experiences we do around here is the Grow 4 experience. So if you haven't done that yet, you may want to do that. And the next step E says, 
I'm going to attend Grow Step Number One. That's coming up on March 11th. We'll send you the link. And here's why this is important. We're going to have our first ever membership meeting um, on Saturday, the 17th of March. So March 11th is the last time, if you're not an official member of our church, to get that membership requirement met so that you can come to that meeting, all right? And you'll find out all about the history, the direction, the leadership, the governance, accountability of our church in that place. And then you'll be given an opportunity to decide if you want to be an official part of what the Lord's doing here. Why don't you take your Connect card and set it aside? We have some folks that are uh, going to come forward and prepare to receive uh, tithe and offerings. This is where people who call this church home support the work that we're doing. A lot of you are parents and you dropped off your kids in our uh, elementary section of our building and you saw that all the stud work for our construction is complete. So now you can see what it looks like. I just want to say thank you for your faithfulness to give to make that happen. This week I was reading on a blog a gentleman by the name of Seth Godin. He's a funny look looking little man, but he has incredible insight on leadership and life. And he wrote a phrase I want to read to you. He said, by giving people mere tools to take action, we keep decreasing the gap between what we wish for and what we can do about it. There's a gap between what we wish for and what we can do about it. I thought about that when I thought about our offering time today. Our church has a lot of things we want to do. We wish for a lot of things. And so many of you are faithful to give, to take our wishes and turn them into action. That's what's happening with the construction. When you came in today, the lights were on and the heat was on because you're faithful to give. And I'm grateful to be a part of a group of people who are so generous and faithful that we can do incredible things together. And I join my money with your money and great things happen. Thank you for that. Let's pray about our next steps on our offering right now. And then we're going to celebrate together. Father, thank you for the great work that you are doing in this world. God, I want to right now lift up marriages to you. Lord, there's some healing that needs to happen in some, in, in some marriages in this room. God, I pray that we would honor and value confessing our sins to one another that we might be healed. That would be a common practice in the marriages here. I pray, Lord, that forgiveness would be normal in marriages, that either consciously or subconsciously we would not hold a grudge and bring pain where we've been pained. I pray that you'd raise up marriages to be shining lights in our communities, in our homes, to our children, to our friends. Do your great work in us. Father, I lift up those men and women that are saying, Jesus, save me. Wash away my sins. I want to commit my life to you. I trust you and the work that you did on the cross to secure my relationship to my heavenly Father. And Lord, would you take our offering and make it go far and wide? Would you turn our wishes into our actions through our obedience and giving? That we would make a difference, not for our glory, but for yours, and your name would be made more famous in our city and around the world. We pray all this in the name of Jesus, God's strong and holy son. Amen and amen.